I, I did not tell Nancy she could not wear a referee shirt and run up the aisle. I did not say that. On Friday, when I heard that that was what her plan was, I will acknowledge I received the message with horror, but I refrained from speaking, except to say, Nancy, you are more than welcome to do that, but I will tackle you. <laughs> and apparently, although I gave her permission, the, the prospect of seeing this type of middle linebacker build come hurtling like a gazelle over the pews was enough to cause her to see the light. So, Nancy, you are, you are wise, and we appreciate you and applaud you. Now, this morning, uh, I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapters 1 through 3. It's a bit of a long uh, section, obviously. Ideally, what we would want to do is we'd want to take probably three or even four Sundays and work through this section together in a little bit more detail. Uh, doing the Bible reading program that we're doing, reading the Bible through a year, uh, we don't have that sort of luxury. And so I'm going to try to frame things out just a little tiny bit. I'm, I'm well aware of sort of the insufficiency of this kind of approach, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to learn something as we go. So let me to read the first uh, 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is the word of God. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be done, or what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Well, before we uh, consider this passage, let's pray. Lord, we would ask uh, that in your grace you would help us to profit by your word uh, this morning. Uh, the sorts of things that are expressed in this book are, are not typical uh, in terms of the rest of your word. We, we recognize that it harmonizes and yet the message is intentionally discordant, uh, perspectival, looking at life from a different perspective than what we normally find in your word. So help us to hear it, uh, help us understand it, help us to benefit from it, uh, help us to see our own lives in light of your light, and may we, in responding to your word, may we please and honor you. 
We pray, Lord, uh, that as we begin uh, this new season and era in our church life, that it will be pleasing and honoring to you. I pray especially for uh, those who are students who are here as they begin again uh, into classes and all the various things and challenges that they have. I pray that you will guide them by your spirit, give them great wisdom and faithfulness, give them a deep purity of heart, help them to love what you love, uh, help them to love each other and to love you supremely. Prepare them, uh, even now work in them, not only to prepare them for the future, but help them to even live their lives today in fullness. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's really important whenever you read anything to understand the genre of what you're reading. So if you read a political cartoon in the newspaper and you sort of absolutize it as some sort of definitive news statement, you're going to be in trouble. Uh, you have to recognize you know, the difference between the headlines and the comics. And unfortunately, actually today with our news, uh, you might have a harder time differentiating than ever before, uh, but you're supposed to see different genres uh, communicate in slightly different ways. If you read parables as historical narrative, you'll be in a world of trouble. Uh, if you read Psalms without understanding the poetry and the metaphor and the imagery, then you'll be in trouble again. And the same is true with Ecclesiastes. If you don't understand what's going on in this book, you're going to be in trouble. The idea here is that the wisest person in the world comes to address you, and he's going to explain to you basically the meaning of life. That's a bit anachronistic. That's how we would phrase it. It's not how they would have phrased it back then. But it's the main idea. Here's the meaning of life. Here's what's important. Here's what's essential. Here's what makes life worth living. And so everyone gathers, the whole assembly gathers, and they wait with bated breath for this master teacher to stand up and to communicate to them the meaning of life. Now, this is highly rhetorical. It's a speech. In fact, I had, I had talked with Jessica about just reading the entire book without any commentary whatsoever. Uh, because that's how, that's sort of the, the, the atmosphere that you're supposed to have. You're being addressed. And then, uh, just like Nancy, I chickened out. So I am going to make comments uh, as we go. I'm not going to read uh, the entire book. And that's also because Jessica said she'd tackle me if I tried. So this is the motif that we have working behind the scenes uh, here at Crestwick uh, Baptist Church. Uh, the person's addressing you. And he's assuming objections to his message. Paul will do this explicitly in places where he becomes dialogical. So uh, Romans 9. Some of you will say to me, well, who resists God's will? Is God unjust? He's assuming the objection. Uh, Malachi is dialogical. You have robbed God, but you will say, how have we robbed him? Do you see? And so there's this construction of dialogue. So in some ways, this book rhetorically will make a point, then we'll answer all of the objections as they go. In that sense, it's a bit like a conversation. So we're going to be conversational. I'm going to talk to you, and you will not sleep. You will talk back uh, to me. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The word meaningless can be translated as vanity or vapor. Fascinatingly, when the Greeks translated the Hebrew of the Old Testament, they used a word that you find in Romans 8, when we're told that all of creation has been subjected to futility or frustration. That's the word that the Greeks associated with this Hebrew word, havel. 
So the idea here is utter vanity, meaninglessness, it's a vapor, it's gone, there's nothing substantial. And so you almost think, as you hear this master teacher explain to you the meaning of life, that this is like the rhetorical opening, and then he's going to explain where you find meaning. He's just sort of setting you up, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything or all things are meaningless, except for, is what you expect. But what he's going to do is relentlessly, and that's why the book actually needs to be worked through carefully, the, the relentless nature of it is part of the message. It's wave after wave after wave after wave, where you want to say, yeah, but, what about this? He's anticipating that, and he's bringing it up himself to say, you're going to think this is meaningful, but it's not. He's going to undercut every single one of your defenses. Now, before we go any further then, or before we move on with that idea, the rest of the verses that I read in chapter 1, they establish this. Everything's meaningless. Well, why? Because you don't gain anything from anything that you do. Chapter, verse 3 asks the question that every worker has asked. Everyone who has ever had a job has asked, what's the point? What am I doing here? What am I gaining? What am I accomplishing? And every worker at some point has tried to justify their existence. You'll you'll recall uh, the great short story, Jack London, the sea captain, where this this sea captain, uh, he, he works relentlessly, day after day, very little sleep for very poor quality food. And at the end of the story, there's, he, he analyzes that, that he works and sleeps to get food. And he eats just to have the energy to work and sleep. His whole life is this meaningless existential treadmill where he just can't get anywhere. And it's misery and drudgery. Frankly, probably all of us at some point vocationally feel precisely that. What is the point? What am I accomplishing? It's just more of the same day after day after day after day. That's why I'm convinced every job site needs a spiritual advisor. Someone to come along and just help people understand that there actually may be something a little bit more uh, than this. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The earth is the treadmill. And, And as it keeps cycling around, spinning around the sun and all of the rest, you know, generations keep getting thrown off the back, and new generations keep running on the front. But generations keep moving through. The earth remains static, even in its movement. The people on top of it change. They play their short scene, and then they're gone. The sun rises, and the sun sets, and hurries back. The wind, the water cycles, everything that's explained here, it's all in flux, it's all moving, but it's not going anywhere. Lots of frenetic activity. In fact, I think our society uh, is a society where there is more pace and movement uh, with, with less progression than ever before. But it's people are killing themselves just to stand still. You know, everyone's running 100 miles an hour, but they're not getting anywhere. And there's this real sense of frustration. So in some of our cities, there's a real sense of, of just pace of life is unsustainable. We weren't made to live this way, but no one knows what else to do. It's all we understand. And, and so we run and we run and we run. We, we get into the rat race, but we can't get anywhere. And you keep thinking, if only something new would come along. If only there was a breakthrough. 
Like this guy says, listen, if you, there is nothing new under the sun. Now, under the sun, you think in terms of ancient times, uh, before air conditioning, in the Middle East with the sun burning down on you. This is not a pleasant experience. This is not being outside on a nice sunny day. Uh, this is being oppressed by the heat of the sun. It's also a limited worldview. If this life is all there is, if what we see is all there is, what's the point? You see, there isn't one, ultimately. It's just pure meaninglessness. Uh, this actually goes well with a lot of what our, our atheistic and secular philosophers were saying in the earlier part of the last century. Today, unfortunately, a lot of our atheist philosophers have lost their nerve, and they're trying to say, you know, we can live in a purposeless universe, but have meaning in our lives. Which is utter rubbish. Uh, tougher generations would say, look, if this is all there is, there is no meaning. You need to accept that. Today, people want to have their cake and eat it too. It doesn't work that way philosophically. Under the sun is a restricted worldview. There's all these endless promises. Something new. Now listen, I, I, I actually don't know because they come up with one every couple days. What's the latest iteration of the iPhone? The iPhone X. That's awesome, right? Like, I, I have friends who, who love technology. And... And every iPhone iteration, they'll stand in line to get the latest one. And the incredible thing to me is this. If you want to get the latest iPhone, like if, okay, wonderful, you know, you, go ahead. But, but somehow that coincides with having to run down the last one you just were praising six months before. So, so if the iPhone X is the latest one, and the one that you just had was the iPhone, what letter comes before X? I can't do the alphabet backwards. Uh, whatever that is. And, and all of a sudden, that's garbage. You know, you, wait, you camped out in line for 72 hours to be the first one in the store to get that iPhone when it was released six months ago, and now it's garbage. It was the thing that was going to give your life meaning. You know, you opened up that little box, and you were just so happy with that little phone in your hands, and you would never need anything again. It completed you until three months later. And then it was garbage. Now it's, this is what I need. Technology moves. They're, they didn't have iPhones back in the days of Ecclesiastes. And I say this reverently, but thank God, or no one would have thought deeply enough to write this book. So technology changes, but it's still just technology. So, so people still went to war with weapons. The weaponry has adapted, but it's still weapons. It's still war. It's still horrid. It's just more horrid now. Because we can kill more people more easily. It's all new. Nothing's new. People have always been waiting for the next invention to complete their lives. It's never going to happen. Never. Technology is not going to give our lives meaning. And if you try to find meaning in technology, you'll end up in despair. Not only that, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Whatever you are living for, no one is going to remember you. No one. You think that's not true? It's true. Name for me all of the prime ministers of Canada. How many of you can do that? How many of you know all of the names of the prime ministers in the history of Canada? It's a really young country, by the way. The most important person in the nation 
Just, just a little tiny. 150 years is a little bit more. Most of us, we could never list that, list that off. Who won the World Series two years ago? Give me the roster. Right? I mean, we just don't know. These are the people who reached the pinnacle of success. We don't know. We don't remember. We don't remember two years later. Who's going to remember us? I, mean, I think that being a professor at Oxford or Harvard is, is sort of prestigious in the academic world. How many of you can name more than five professors at Harvard? How many of you can name more than five professors at Oxford? Do you, do you see? People don't even know people now, let alone generations to come. I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm stockpiling you know, all of my sermons, because I'm going to be the exception. Uh, thousands of years from now, on the iPhone MMCX7, they're going to be listening to me, you know, telling them that actually might be prophetic. One day there's going to be an iPhone called that, and I'm going to sue for royalties and be as rich as can be. Which apparently is actually the meaning of life, getting rich. That's what he deals with in chapter 2. I said to myself, he says, come now, self. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. He's going to try everything. He's going to make a rational choice. I'm going to find out what people are doing. You know, people go out to the comedy club. Maybe that's worth doing. People go to the movies endlessly. Maybe that's worth doing. People, people watch YouTube for hours and hours and hours on end. Maybe that's worth doing. People go to the symphony. Maybe that's worth doing. Maybe it's at the ballet. Maybe it's at the book club. Maybe that's where I'll find meaning. Every type of pleasure there is. But that also proves to be meaningless. Vapor, nothing. Laughter, I said, is madness. What does pleasure accomplish? He'll work through this theme in the rest of the book. People are, are literally amusing themselves to death. They're laughing. There's nothing funny. They actually stop and look at their life. It's just a superficial triviality floating lightly on the surface. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So he tries, I think he makes a rational choice. I'll be a connoisseur. Maybe I'll, I'll become a wine connoisseur. Just the best. Not too much, but the best for me. The finest things of life. But I think he also makes a rational choice. Yeah, but there's a lot of people just getting, just getting drunk on the weekends. Maybe that's, where, maybe that's worth trying. How do you know unless you've tried it? Maybe we'll try. Enough people are doing that. It's almost like uh, the LSD culture in the 1960s. And they're not the lower end, but the higher end. Timothy O'Leary and others at Harvard. They were saying, let's use uh, psychedelic drugs to expand consciousness. It was a rational choice to drop acid in certain circles. I think this guy's like that. I'm going to make a rational choice to experiment with drugs and alcohol. I'm going to find out what is worth doing. But there's nothing. It's not there. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself, plural, and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. This, he, makes it, he makes Eden. He makes an Edenic paradise. 
I bought male and female slaves that other slaves were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I, I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, and all of this my wisdom stayed with me. Money, power, possessions, sex, anything he wanted, he got. Anything he wanted, he had. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my soul. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And this is supposed to be if you're wise, the moment when all of your hopes for the future shatter. Do you realize that statistically, people who win the lottery have higher instances of both depression and suicide after winning the lottery than before? How counterintuitive is that? Now, partly, it's because people who play the lottery have no idea how to manage money. Uh, so then they get a lot, and then they just ruin their lives with it. That's part of it. But it's partly, as long as you think the next stage will bring happiness, you can live with that illusion until you reach the next stage, and it's empty. It's a cliche that the loneliest place is at the top. It's an utter societal cliche, but we, 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 won't, we won't actually acknowledge the truth of it, that people will do anything to advance, and when they finally arrive at where they wanted to arrive, it's not what they thought it would be. It's empty and meaningless. The, the extra money, the extra house, it just doesn't fill up your heart. It doesn't. It was never designed to. But in our society, we keep chasing after those things. The next $100,000, the next million dollars, the, the house with two more bedrooms, the house with, with a few more acres, that's when I'll finally be happy. That's when I'll be somebody. But you never will be. That's not how life works. If that's where you're trying to find meaning, you're always going to find emptiness in your hands. The conclusion in verse 17 is this. So I hated life. See, some people, some evangelicals want to make Ecclesiastes a really happy book. It's really, really hard to do that if you actually just pay attention to a phrase like, so I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Before that, verse 16, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come and both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. The great leveler is death. Whether you are drunk in a gutter, homeless, addicted, shamed, whether you're the greatest philanthropist and statesman in the world, the grave is where you are both headed. Death is the great leveler. So I hated life. Notice, verse 4, also, of chapter 2. Just hear this. I undertook, I built, I made, I made, I bought, 
I owned, I amassed, I acquired, I became, I denied myself, I refused my heart, my heart, my labor, my toil, I surveyed my hands, I had toiled. This person's self-centered, right? <laughs> like, like, this is the other thing. When life is what you're going to get out of it, when it's all, I did this and I did that, look at all of my accomplishments, look at all the things I have done, look at all the things, look at me. The reality is you'll find that you're actually not worth living for. If you're living for yourself, if you're your own God, it's futile. It can't be anything less. You yourself are not worth living for in terms of your own self. I remember one day, one day when I had to haul a bunch of stuff uh, to the dump. It is shocking how much stuff goes to the dump. One morning, I had to take stuff to the dump. So I did that. And you know that when you're taking that stuff, whatever it is, at some point it was new. Like someone manufactured it. Someone wanted it. Right, and, and, and now it's just garbage. And so you go to the dump, and that day I had to do a, a run to the dump, and a couple hours later I had to uh, officiate at uh, at a burial. I remember I stood in that cemetery, having been at the dump in the morning, and being at that burial that afternoon. I remember thinking, this is this is a perfect example of Ecclesiastes. All of the stuff goes to the dump. All of our lives end at the cemetery. That's the way it is under the sun. It is utterly inescapable. All of the things that you amass one day will be garbage. The reality is in our society, most of the things you buy new are garbage immediately. Uh, even on the shelf, they're garbage before you acquire them. You know, We acquire garbage, it takes us a little while to figure out that it is garbage, then we throw it out. It's the dump and it's the cemetery under the sun. So I hated life. Chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. Now, what follows next really truly is one of the most beautiful... uh, It is one of the most beautiful poetic lyrics in all of world literature. It just is. Small wonder that people have taken this and have made it Christian wall art, you know, where you make posters, you crochet it, or whatever you do, and you put it up in your house, and it's all so nice. And, and it's a you know, small wonder that the birds, spelled with a Y, you know, took this and made it into a song, to everything turn, turn, turn. A great song, you should listen to that. Uh, absolutely wonderful, especially sort of the plaintive uh, at the end. You know, a time for war and going on. A time for peace. I swear it's not too late. You know the, cul- you know, the cultural content, you just hear the, 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 their hearts bleeding. Please, please. There's a time for peace. Why can't it be in our time? It's not too late. And you hear that. And then today, you could say the exact same thing. Why can't there be peace? There's still time. It's not too late. But this, in context, actually, is not supposed to be Christian Wallard. In context, this is supposed to be utterly depressing. The reason is this. We've already established that absolutely every single thing that you're ever going to do is meaningless. So what this is telling you now is, hey, good news. 
there's a time for all the meaningless stuff you're going to do. Right? It's not overly an optimistic message. And, and the worst thing of all is you're going to get to the end of it and you're going to be told this. Wisdom literature is all about timing. You know, humor's about timing. You know, sports is about timing. Everything is about timing. There's a time for this. There's a time for this. There's a time and a purpose. There's a place for everything. The problem in Ecclesiastes is that we never know the right time. So it doesn't help us. Yes, there's a time for all of these things, and we are invariably getting the time wrong. We're getting the time wrong all the time. So we know this is true. There's a time for all these things. But look at your life and look at world history. How often have you, has your timing been immaculate? A time to be born and a time to die. This, first of all, this list runs on literal and metaphorical lines the whole way through. A time to be born and a time to die. This immediately frames the list structurally in things that are out of your control. You did not choose to be born. You're not going to choose to die. And so there's a time for these things. Immediately you are told, under the sun, your life is not your own. You can't choose to live. You're not going to choose to die. There's a time to be born and a time to die, but it is utterly irrelevant what you think about either one of those two things. That's not an optimistic message. A time to plant and a time to uproot. To know the difference, you need to know what's good. You need to be able to recognize um, what needs to be cultivated. You need to be able to recognize what needs to be nurtured. You need to be able to see this is this is good. This is this is healthy. This can be fruitful. And then to pour your life and love into that. But you also need to know what needs to be weeded. You need to know what's an invasive species. Uh, you need to know what trees need to be cut down and uprooted. You need to know that. So there's a time for both of these things. But what if you misidentify the plant? What if you, what if you uproot too soon? Or what if you keep trying to, to fertilize something that's already dead? You, you have to get the timing right. I just want to say one quick thing too about a time to be born and a time to die. I do think this also frames things out, not only in terms of beginning and end of life, although it certainly does that. It is literal. It is also metaphorical. There are times between cradle and grave when you are to experience renaissance. When you are to experience, and of course renaissance just means rebirth, right? where, where, where you are to not in Jesus' sense, although certainly we would include that, when you need to be born again. And so there are times when you need to, in positive ways and in authentic ways, recreate yourself, or at least allow yourself to develop and grow so that you can flourish. There, there are times for that. And there are also times to put things to death inside of yourself. Uh, there are times to see elements of the old nature die. That's not exactly what he's talking about, but I think that's important. A time to kill and a time to heal. These are obviously not exact semantic opposites. Uh, only God gives life. 
So it doesn't say a time to kill and a time to make alive. Only God can actually make alive. But we are to be responsible to kill and to heal. Sometimes you have to know, and I say this sensitively, I really do, uh, sometimes you have to know when, it, when it's time to, to put the dog down. Sometimes it's time to kill. Sometimes it's time to heal. And, and God help us for getting these times wrong. And, and for mixing these times up. Uh, I'm so convinced, I don't have time to talk about it, but I'm so convinced that one of the great pressing problems in our, in our society, not just our society, but in our churches, is that um, we, we don't know how to embrace the time to die and the time to kill. We just don't. Uh, in, in, our, in our medical system, we, we, we've lost the ability to allow people to die when it's time to die. We work to heal, but there's a time where you stop trying to heal. There's a time that you allow nature to take its course. But there are also times when you need to pour all of the love that you are capable of pouring into someone to help them heal. Uh, there are times in life when you need to come alongside of someone and you need to hear them and know them and respect them and understand where they're coming from and cheer for them for where they're going and help them heal from all the various hurts that they may have suffered in their lives. There's a time for that. There's a time to tear down and a time to build. Uh, here at this church, in terms of this building, uh, that was a discussion point. All right. Do we repair? Do we sell? Do we move? Do we build new? There's a time to say, if we're not done here yet, let's, let's renovate. There's a time to say, oh, the renovations are worth way more trouble than, you know, than moving. Let's do something new. And there's different opinions about that sometimes. But that's a recognition. There's a time to, to tear things down. There's a time to bring in the bulldozer and, and knock it over. It's just easier to build up new. Sometimes that's the case. But sometimes it's just easier to say, no, no, it's just, it's just a repair. Let's renovate. Let's fix it. It's a time to build up, not a time to tear down. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Now, he's already established that laughter is meaningless. You want to remember that when you get here, right? Uh, laughter is meaningless. But, but there are times when, when there should be such overwhelming joy that you're, you're merry and you laugh. That's appropriate sometimes. It's appropriate to laugh you know, with, with sparkling eyes. That's a beautiful thing. But there's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. And this is, again, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just wrong about so many things. But, but I look at the church, and Jesus in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. And I look at the church, and I, and I just don't see the mourning that there ought to be sometimes. And, and, and the outrage about things that there ought to be sometimes. You know, whether, whether it's, it's, it's you know, our individual sin, or or societal structures of, of injustice, or, or exploitation and abuse. And we've, we've talked about you know, these, these kids in the Philippines who have been sexually abused, uh, and, and the program that we're involved in trying to help them. And you go, but where's the mourning? Like, like, you, 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 can't, you can't send a check with apathy and think that's what God wants. God doesn't need the money. Where, where's the heart that says, 
fundamentally, this is so wrong. I, I can't endure this. There's a time to mourn. A time to weep. And a time to laugh. A time to mourn. And a time to dance. Sometimes, sometimes we laugh so hard we weep. It's so beautiful. Sometimes we mourn. We do. Sometimes we dance. As a Baptist, this goes against my inclination. But for the next five seconds, I, in response to this text, am going to dance. Okay. That was painful. <clears throat> oh, a time to mourn after you dance. That's what the text says. A time to scatter stones and a time uh, to gather them. Sometimes you need to clear your field. Sometimes you need to bring things together to build a wall. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You know, sometimes you just need to hold someone. Sometimes you need to do that. And, and when it's that time, one of the things that we, need, that we ought to do is we need to make these times count. So whatever the time is, make the most of it. Uh, so if it's time to embrace, then embrace. And do it right. Make it matter. Make it significant. Uh, make it count. But there's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to provide distance. There, there's even a time to push away. There's a time to establish boundaries. There's a time to draw lines. There's a time to recognize that, that this, this circle is not going to be a positive influence in your life and you need to step back. There are times when there are things that, that you thought you wanted, that you thought would improve, and as you get into you find that it's not that. And so you need to, you need to let go of certain things. There, there's times you need to open up your hands and set things free. There's a time almost violently to, to push things away, to, to, to pry someone's arms off you and let them go. We need to do that sometimes. So when it's time not to embrace, don't embrace. But again, when it is, make sure that you do. Uh, those times don't come all the time. A time to search and a time to give up. You can err too long by searching when it's futile. But you can also miss out on all kinds of things if you give up too soon. Again, how, how tragic to, to, to continue on a, a, you know, a Don Quixote kind of quest. How, how tragic to keep moving on when you'll never get to the end, when you're, when you're you know, just, when it's just futile and foolish. It's a fool's errand. How tragic to waste your life doing that. And yet how tragic to give up when, when something beautiful is just right there. Just, just around the next bend of the river. You know, you... you, you you're tired of paddling in the canoe and you want to stop it, but it's, it's just, just around that bend. So, so instead of giving up, you just keep going. So just the next turn, maybe it's right there. 
don't give up too soon. But who knows the time for which. A time to keep and a time to throw away. Oh, in our society, I wish so much we learned that there's a time to keep rather than everything being disposable. A time to tear and a time to mend this one as well. Because you care, I'm going to share with you my dream vision of fashion in our society. And you will like this. I think, following Thoreau, Walden, that no one should be able to buy new clothes until they're a new person. That is, you should not be able to improve your external wardrobe until you've improved your internal character. I think that's wonderful. Most of us would be wearing awfully old clothes if that were the case, but I think it's a very interesting principle. And so then I'd like this. I'm tired of a lot of things. Here's one of them. I'm tired of, of the cookie-cutter fast fashion of our society. Things made to be cheap, to be disposably thrown out. I'm tired of fashion magazines telling me that fall's colors this year are brown and red stripes, whereas last year it was obviously yellow and pink polka dots. Like, I'm just not sure fall cares. You know, like, I'm not sure that's the case. I, I consulted, I've done surveys and group surveys with October and November. They're pretty neutral colors, actually. Like, I just don't think that there's any possibility of of seasons having different fashion statements as time goes on. So this is what I want to see. I'm tired of going to weddings and I know exactly what everyone's going to be wearing. I hate that. What I want is this. You buy a suit, you don't buy another suit till it wears out. Wow. And I was going to fire you tomorrow. <laughs> you can stick around. Because I think it would be glorious. You buy, you buy a suit in the 1970s, like, tough luck, that was your decade. But, you know, you just, you just keep that until it wears out. And you just be proud of that suit. And then whoever else has it in the 1980s, and then, you know, all the baggy suits in the 1990s. And then we get together, and we just look around, and it's actually diverse. And we actually go, you know what? This is glorious. Like, we all look so bad, you know. But we celebrate that because... Isn't it better than, than spending hundreds of dollars on stuff and throwing the other stuff out in the garbage or you take it to, you take it to the Goodwill to, to, to put a little bomb on your conscience, but it's just going to the dump there anyway. No, why do we throw out things that work? I just don't get it. I, 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 and and I, I'm just in cable. I don't understand. I don't. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we patched clothes? I think it would be. I actually, this would be a beautiful thing. Where we celebrated, you know, you have a tear in the knee of your pants, patch it instead of sending it to the landfill. I suspect, I might be wrong, I suspect it's pride. I suspect that over time, patches became associated with poverty and we're too good to be poor. Because there's no functional reason for it at all. We get a hole in our tire, we patch it. We don't buy a new tire. The tiniest little tear in our pants and and we throw them out and, and go buy a new set. I, I think that's crazy. I think that there's a time to mend, but we just never do. Some ways that, I'll be really careful with this, in some ways, I'm not hoping for a depression, but a depression-era mentality might be really good for our society. There's a time to be silent and a time to speak. Obviously, I don't know the difference. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I know better than Jake. <clears throat> a time to love and a time to hate. <clears throat> Well, isn't it always time to love? Isn't it always time to love? Depending on what you mean by that, yes. But if you love, there has to be a lot of things you hate. Or else you don't love. If you love, then you hate when people are hurt. When, when you love, you hate even the thought of corrupting sin. When you love, you, you, you hate the idea that you could be the instrument of pain in someone's life. When you love, when you love the Jews, you hate the Nazis. Not as individual people, but as a machine, as a corporate entity. No, if, if you love, there must be hate, or else you don't love. At least not when you live in a world that's so fallen as ours. So there's a time for war and a time for peace. Precisely because you love, there's a time for war. There are people who are worth going to war for. There are things that are worth living for, and there are things that are worth dying for. It's a time for war. It's a time to say, all right, I don't care what the obstacle is. You know, give me my lance, give me my armor, give me my horse. I will go to war because there's someone, there's something, there's a principle, there's a person that is loved dearly and they need their honor to be protected and defended. We love, we hate, we go to war because there's a time for peace. We fight not to be belligerent, we fight to create wholesome, integral reality of peace and harmony. That's why we go to war. It's not an end in itself. It's to accomplish greater purposes and greater goals. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also said he turned in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. You go through this whole list, and if you haven't felt it as an enormous, shocking burden, you haven't understood what he said. The reason they don't put this in the Christian wall art. There's a burden. It's a terrible burden. Why? Because we don't know the right time. And not only that, we're living in this, in, in this temporal world. But what has God done? He's put eternity into our hearts. Is, we can't be satisfied unless it's forever. You know, we can't possibly be satisfied unless this matters. If it's just this bounded temporal world under the sun, it's all meaningless in every way. It's not enough time. All of these times are irrelevant if there's only a few of them. There has to be forever or you will hate life. But God has put that eternity in our hearts. 
And, and so we, we feel that tension. We feel this, this, this drive for forever, but we're temporally bounded. And he's saying, if you feel that tension, if you're pulled in pieces, you'll hate your life, you'll hate your times, you'll despise everything because you can never get it right. And you can't. And that's a very important message. It's the counterpoint. It's, it's the shadowing that shows up the light in the rest of the canon. Because when you begin to sink deeply into this reality, it enables and empowers you to embrace the light that comes through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ gives us forever. Jesus Christ comes from above the sun into this world that's under the sun. And he redeems it all. Every aspect of it. Even the most, even the most horrific and horrific Horrible things and institutions of exploitation and slavery. Jesus redeems in love and, and makes them beautiful in their time. And, and then he, he takes on all of the futility and the hatred and, and, and the animosity and, and the war and the mourning and the breaking and the scattering and the uprooting and the death when he dies on the cross. And he redeems even that and is raised to life. And so he who comes from, from over the sun comes into this world under the sun, dies under the sun, and then is raised to life and ascends again back into the realm of glory. And this time, it's to prepare a place for us to go and be with him. So that our eternal destiny, thank God, is not under the sun. It's not Ecclesiastes. It's forever, where it will always be a time for love, will always be a time for peace, will always be a time for joy, and even, although I can't imagine it, it'll be a time to dance, it'll be a time to rejoice and celebrate with utter freedom and fullness and abandon, because at that time, we will actually live in love. Well, may Christ help us. May he guide us. May he anchor us patiently in that day of forever. And in living in eternity, may he also help us to learn to live today uh, in all of the moments and all of our times. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.